The passage that we're looking at this evening is from Luke and can be found on page 1051 in the Bibles and the chairs in front of you. So we're looking at Luke chapter 17 and we're starting to read at verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant ploughing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what, what, what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Well, let's pray as we begin. We just sung these words, Our God reigns. He is king of all the earth. Our God reigns. He is seated on the throne. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for that reality that in our turbulent and troublesome world, Father, that you sit enthroned. And we thank you, Father, that by your Spirit, you govern the church through your Word. And so we pray, Father, that as we hear your Word explained now and as we meditate on it in our hearts, that you would give us understanding, Father, that you are Lord and help us to respond to these words as if you are Lord. And we ask for your help in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can see from the passage's opening titles and its closing credits that the issue we're going to be thinking about tonight is faith. Um, the section starts with a question about faith in verse 5, and it ends on the subject of faith in verse 19. Now, faith, I'm sure almost all of us will have heard of. We know it's an important concept 
in the Bible. And faith really means to believe or trust in something or someone. Now, as I say, we all know it's an important concept. We, after all, we call it the Christian faith. And as Protestants, we say that we're saved by faith. And um, as St. Mary's, we sing that Getty song, By Faith. And um, just as I said in there, I noticed that the last song this evening, we're going to be singing By Faith. And it starts every verse by faith. We all know faith is an important concept for the Christian, which is why I've been wrestling with this question in my preparation. Why doesn't Jesus answer the apostles' prayer in verse 5? See, I don't know if you see it there. The apostles, the 12, they asked Jesus for more faith. And it seems a fair request, doesn't it? They're asking for more belief, more trust. And the request looks even more legitimate when you see what's just come before. Um, We looked at this last week. Jesus has been given some hard commands, the need to forgive others. And it seems to lead to the apostles saying, give us more faith in verse 5. If we're going to do this, Jesus, if we're going to have the ability to forgive others, increase our belief. And yet Jesus doesn't answer their prayer. Instead, in verse 6, he replies with this kind of cryptic statement about mustard seeds and trees going out of the ground into the sea. But then after that, as we're going to see this evening, he goes into this illustration and starts um, and, and then into the healing. But at no stage does Jesus actually answer their prayer for more faith. Why not? Surely faith is a good thing. The apostles want more of it. So why doesn't Jesus give it. But the answer I came up with is this. They haven't understood what faith is about. They haven't understood what faith is about. I think that's the only explanation that fits the fact that Jesus goes on to teach about faith and illustrate about faith. They must be missing something. Something in their question kind of shows Jesus that they've not understood the true nature of faith. I don't know if you've ever been in that position where you've been discussing something with someone, but the questions they're asking you give you the impression that they've missed something more fundamental. I mean, to give you an example, in this job, I often find myself in conversations with people about the Christian faith, as soon as they find out what, I'm, what I do, and most of the time, those questions about the, are about the ethical teaching of Christianity. Now, they're not wrong questions. The Christian faith does contain implications for ethics. But sometimes, quite a lot of times, I've just got the sense they've not understood what Christianity is about. And I've had to stop a person quite often and say, look, you too realize that Christianity is not fundamentally a guide uh, for Christian ethics. Do you see the point? The, The questions they ask suggest that they've not understood something more fundamental down the track. And it's like that for the apostles. The fact that they ask for an increase in faith show they've not actually grasped what faith is about. And let's be honest, if they've not grasped it, if the guys who went round with Jesus day in, day out for several years did not get what faith was, then chances are there'd be some of us, me included, in this room that need to learn what they needed to learn. 
What is it then they haven't understood about faith? Well, Jesus goes on to explain about faith using an everyday example in the ancient world. It's the relationship between a servant and a master. And his big point here is that servants are not entitled to special privileges. So we ask this question in verse 7. Who of you has a boss who, after you've done half a day's work, says to you, take the rest of the afternoon off? Anyone got a boss like that? I mean, just imagine you've spent the morning working hard, you've finished the report for the directors, you've put the final touches to your drawings, you've corrected the final piece of faulty code, you've taught your morning lessons, you've treated a difficult patient, but you're only halfway through the day. Are you entitled to the rest of the day off? Does that ever happen? It's not happened to me. Of course not. You, you carry on. So why do you carry on? Well, because you're an employee. You're employed to do a full day's work. And it's a similar idea in verse 9. Are we entitled to special thanks as employees? Now, note the word entitled. I, I know bosses do say thank you. I know it's good to motivate staff by saying thank you. It's a good way of developing a culture of gratitude, all that. But are we, an, are we entitled to a thank you if we've just done what is expected of us? In this job of mine, people say thank you to me lots of times, and I do really appreciate that, genuinely. But no one has said thank you to me for turning up on a Sunday. Now, I know I've said that, and you're all going to start saying thank you now, just to, <laughs> just to prove the point. But um, no one has said thank you. And to be honest, it would be a bit strange if they did. I don't know what I would say in reply, because that is what is expected. I'm a curate. It's the minimum I, I need to turn up on a Sunday. And Jesus' point is that, Jesus' whole point here is this is what our relationship with God is like. We are always his servants. We only ever do our duty. God never owes us thanks. Now you say, that sounds a harsh way of describing our relationship with God. I mean, isn't God our loving Father? Uh, doesn't the Bible tell us that he delights in us? Does he not say elsewhere that he will say thank you? And those things are true. Elsewhere, God does present himself as a good master who delights in his servants. And Jesus speaks of the judgment day when he will say to some, well done, good and faithful servant. So Jesus' point here is not that God is a harsh master, kind of begrudging us of an afternoon off or never saying thank you. But the point is that God never owes us those things. We can never, ever do something that puts an obligation on God to thank or reward us. God, as people say, is never our debtor. We are always a servant, never the master. Now, you might think to yourself, that doesn't sound very appealing. I mean, the idea of being a servant, perhaps you're not a Christian, you just think, that doesn't really sell it to me. But actually, let me say, this is good news. Why is it good news? Well, because it means that we only serve out of God's grace. Just run with this for a minute. Imagine it was different. Imagine that um, we could serve God and that it meant 
that uh, he would thank us or reward us in some way, that we could generally work, and depending on how we worked, we would gain some reward. What would be the outcome? Well, your relationship with God would trace the graph of your performance. If you do well, God is going to be pleased with you. You can be confident. But if you do badly, you're always going to feel the P45 is going to fall on the doormat. And this is the point, I think, that the disciples did not get. If you want to have true faith, it starts with knowing your unworthiness. It's about realizing you will always be a servant. It's easy, isn't it, to forget this as Christians. Um, We can easily, I think, drift into thinking that God owes us something. Perhaps we're conscious and we, we feel that we've given up a huge amount as Christians. Perhaps over many years we've given away our money and it's meant that we've not enjoyed the holidays our friends have had or owned the house that we might have done. Perhaps we've kept the faith at great personal cost. We've lost friends. Our reputation at work or at college has taken a beating. Or perhaps we've just done decades of faithful service to the church. And of course, I'm not criticizing those things whatsoever. Those things are wonderful responses to God's kindness to us. Living a life of self-sacrifice is the life of a Christian. But those things never put God in our debt. They never obligate God to reward us. It's easy, isn't it, to, to think sometimes that God needs to reward us with something, to think that I've done something for him, so he needs to reward me with good health, a fruitful ministry, a stable family life. And the trouble is, when God doesn't seem to uphold his end of the bargain, we get deflated and start to question his goodness. And if we drift into that kind of thinking, I've done it myself, which shows that we've forgotten what true faith looks like. It is knowing your unworthiness. True faith does not serve for a reward or serve because it might get God to owe us. Rather, we only serve because of his grace to us. A few years ago, I, um, I went to Uganda and uh, I had the privilege of going to visit some vicars over there who were training at a Bible college. Um, it's the other way around. They do church work and then go to Bible college, um, where we go to Bible college and then go to church work. And these guys, honestly, had given up everything to be there. I mean, most of them had no money. I think some of them just had a toothbrush, perhaps one or two books. That was all their possessions. And whatever money they managed to earn, they gave it to the college. They traveled miles from their families to go and train. And on top of that, they resisted the urge to get rich through the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is a big thing, very sadly, in Africa. And it's the idea that uh, you would be blessed if you give your money and there's a way of church leaders to get rich. And they, they, they went against that. They taught faithfully the gospel. And I thought to myself, if anyone has a claim on God owing them something. It would be these guys. But to be honest, I've never met a group of people that are so grateful to serve their God. Their keenness to learn, 
to keep serving when they had nothing was staggering. Why was it they did that? Well, they understood their unworthiness, that they had no inherent right to serve, but they had a deep sense of the privilege of doing so. It's so hard, isn't it, in our culture to to think like this. I mean, we, we live in a culture where we feel entitled to be rewarded for working hard. I mean, it's what we tell our children. If, we, if you work hard, you will get rewarded. I mean, even, even our shampoos tell us that we're worth it. But true faith emerges from knowing that we're not worth it. No service we offer can possibly oblige God to reward us. I wonder, do we realize that? But there's another side to the coin here. And um, there's something else that the disciples haven't understood. And to see that, we need to zoom in on this incident with the men with leprosy. Uh, We meet uh, from verse 11 onwards, 10 men suffering with leprosy. And you may know that leprosy was a, a double tragedy. Not only would you suffer from a disease that caused terrible physical disfiguration that almost no one recovered from, but you had to separate yourself from the people. And no one would come near you for fear of being contaminated. Now, if you remember some of the responses to AIDS victims in the 1980s, you, you get something of that idea of how leprosy was seen. And Jesus heals them with a word. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it's quite easy to gloss over what Jesus does here. You think, oh, here we go, leprosy, Jesus heals. Here's another Uh, miracle story. But actually, Luke's placement here is very intentional. See, almost all the healings in this gospel happen in the first half, and this healing is plonked in the second half. And on top of it all, it doesn't quite seem to fit. It comes in a big section where Jesus is teaching, and we get this miracle uh, account here. So why does Luke put it here? Well, because this incident, this miracle, illustrates the point that Jesus is teaching. It shows us something about faith. Now, when you start reading what happens, you you think that these men are the model of faith. In in fact, they show the faith that Jesus has just been talking about. They, They know they're unworthy servants. They don't come to Jesus and demand a healing. They call Jesus master. They ask for mercy. And remarkable, they follow their master's words. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't heal them and then say, go to the priests, who were like the first century health inspectors. He, he doesn't heal them and say, go to the priests. He says, go to the priests, and uh, they obey, and then he heals them. It shows remarkable faith. They seem to be a wonderful example of faith. But as you read on, you realize it's the opposite, at least for 90% of them. See, only one, after being healed, comes back and falls on his face before Jesus and gives him thanks. And verse 19 shows us that it's this man, this one man out of the ten, that is the model of faith. You ask yourself the question, what is it that this man does differently to the other nine? Well, we see that he thanks God 
And the crucial thing here is he thanks God not just to get something. I mean, he's already got what he wanted, but because he wants to. His heart is melted by God's grace. He truly knows deeply how gracious God has been to him. I wonder, what would, it like, what would it take for you to give thanks like this man does in verse 16? That he throws himself on the floor at Jesus' feet. Just take a step for a, uh, back for a second and just think to yourself, why do we give thanks anyway? Well, I think we give thanks because we receive an act of kindness that wasn't our right. But if you think about it, there's different strengths to thanks, isn't there? depending on how much kindness has been shown us in the different situation. So if someone opens the door for me, it's not something that's owed to me, so I say thank you to them. But it's not a strong thanks. I don't fall down on my face before them. I mean, that would be weird, and you wouldn't open the door for me again. But if I think of the doctors who, when my daughter was born, and she wasn't really breathing properly, and she was the wrong colour, so they took her off and got her breathing and made her cry. Well, that was an act of kindness that I couldn't say thank you for enough. But you know what? Even then, I didn't fall on my face. I didn't. <laughs> but this man does because he realizes just what Jesus has done, just how completely undeserving he was and how incredibly gracious God had been. I don't know about you, it's so hard, isn't it, to see Jesus, I think, like this man does. I mean, we can understand who Jesus is. We can have confidence that he forgives sins. We can believe that he gives us eternal life. But, but it really gets under your skin, this passage, because actually the nine lepers show that sort of faith. They, they understood Jesus could help him. They prayed a prayer but after they got what they want, they carry on with their lives. And lots of us, me included, can treat Jesus the same way. We pray the prayer, we get the forgiveness, we inherit eternal life, but then once we get what we want, we carry on with our lives. We don't turn back. We don't give thanks. I was asking myself, what is it, Rob, that stops you being thankful like this man? And the answer I came up with is this. It's a sense of entitlement. See, when I think that I'm getting something that I'm entitled to, I don't give thanks. And in the modern West, it's very easy to feel entitled, isn't it, to a lot of things. I mean, we enjoy so many things, things that my grandparents would have never have dreamed of, of having. Owning a house, being able to go to university, owning a car. I mean, I know not all of us get those things, and uh, some of those things are very difficult for us to get, but lots of us just feel they're our right. And over the decades, it's easy to just think we're entitled to a standard of living that would have been a distant dream to previous generations. And it's easy for that sense of entitlement to slip into how we think about God and the gospel. We hear that God shows grace, but that news doesn't really move me because I think that I'm entitled to forgiveness. It's the kind of thing that God does. It's his job. 
And if I'm honest, I'm the sort of person that I would imagine that God would enjoy to forgive. I'm a lovable type of guy. But entitlement chokes thankfulness, doesn't it? And without thankfulness, Jesus says, there is no true faith. Now, if that is true faith, how do we get it? I don't know about you, but as you hear this passage, I I felt the weight of Jesus' words. But let me say that this passage overall, I think, is an encouragement to us. Let me show you two ways it encourages us. First of all, Jesus says in verse 6 that you only need faith as small as a mustard seed. See, Jesus picks the smallest object they would know and says you only need a tiny bit of faith, the smallest thing you can think of, in the right place, rather than huge quantities of faith in the wrong thing. You only need faith like an atom or like a quark. And secondly, Jesus, we see in Luke's Gospel, shows faith where we fail to. Now, there's a hint here, I think, that this is, just more, this, this is more than just teaching us where to put our faith. It shows us, I think, that we need to be rescued from our inability to have true faith. I don't know if you spotted on the start of verse 11. It's easy to miss this, but it says that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Now, why is that significant? Well, In Luke's gospel, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem is the journey to the cross. Jerusalem isn't just a place in Luke's gospel. It's a purpose. It's where Jesus goes to die. And Luke is saying, look, readers, remember that Jesus is on the way to the cross. And it's passages like this that show us why. See, Jesus' disciples had not understood true faith. The nine men with leprosy, they got what they wanted and they scarpered. And as you read on in Luke's gospel, you see that faith evaporate time and time again. Peter shows huge faith, saying that he's going to stand by Jesus, even at his point of death. But he couldn't stay faithful and deserted him at his trial. But where faith fails time and time again, Jesus triumphs. He's faithful to his mission to drink the cup of his father's wrath, even when he was terrified at the prospect. He is faithful to the words of his father, even when speaking to a crowd who are crying for his blood. He's faithful to bring salvation to many, even on the cross, using his final breaths to save a criminal next to him. And it's because of his faith that a faithful, faithless people like us can be called his servants. How do we respond? Well, if we're here this evening, we're not a Christian, we're not sure we're a Christian. Can you see that this really is what Jesus seeks? Just true faith as small as a mustard seed. True faith is seeing your unworthiness, and it's seeing God's grace to you. Now, you might imagine that becoming a Christian requires some huge work or some huge effort on your part or some huge act of faith. Um, I hear people say this to me all the time, that I could never believe, I could never have your faith. But what does Jesus commend? 
a man with leprosy, with nothing to offer, who is just thankful for what Jesus has done. That is faith. That is what makes a Christian. And for us Christians here, how often do we lift up the bonnet on our faith and have a look? As we said, it can be so easy, can't it, to have faith, to serve Jesus, to do great acts of service, but to do it with that sense of entitlement. I wonder what attitudes do we need to confess and repent of? A lack of humility, an unthankful heart? And what is it in the cross, as we see Jesus show faithfulness when no one else does, that moves us to show faith like him? Let's pray. Jesus asked, were not all the ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise except this foreigner? Then he said, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Heavenly Father, as we look at this man with leprosy and his response, we know, Father, that he shows us up so often. He shows faith, this foreigner, this person with nothing. And so often, Father, we feel entitled. We feel like the other nine. Forgive us, we pray, Father, for that. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to be a people who show faith like this leper. And please, Father, motivate us to do that. Please, Father, give us confidence in what is accomplished on the cross. And please move us by Jesus' faithfulness, to show faithfulness to him. In his name we pray. Amen.